Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the third event in 5 by 15 series, Six Ideas to Change the World, a new collaboration with Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust. Each month, we're hosting live conversations about some of the most pressing issues of our time, featuring some of the most compelling and hard-hitting work that's being published about the future, the six ideas that will shape life on our planet in the years to come. With extreme heat currently spreading across Europe and the globe, the question of climate migration, of how and where we live, is an urgent one. This evening's conversation really couldn't be more timely, and I'm very much looking forward to welcoming tonight's speakers. Guy Vince's new book should be read not just by every politician, but by every person on the planet. These are words taken from a review in The Observer and just one example of the extraordinary acclaim that Guy's book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval, has received since its publication last summer. Guy Vince is an honorary senior research fellow at UCL and also the author of several other books, including Adventures in the Anthropocene, which won the Royal Society Science Book of the Year Prize, making Guy the first woman ever to do so, and also the brilliant Transcendence. She's held senior editorial posts at Nature and New Scientist, and her writing has appeared widely in publications including The Guardian, The Times and Scientific American. This evening, she's going to be in conversation with Henry Mance, the chief features writer at the Financial Times. Henry writes features for the FT Weekend and runs the Henry Mance interview with leading figures, which appears every other Monday. He's a past winner of Interviewer of the Year at the Press Awards and also the author of the book, How to Love Animals and Protect Our Planet. You can buy both of our speakers' books tonight from our brilliant independent bookseller, Newham Bookshop, and information about how to order them will be posted in the chat shortly. Remember too that we want to hear from you. Towards the end of this evening's conversation, there'll be time to address questions from the audience. So please do post these in the Q&A box at any time during the event and Gaia and Henry will get to as many as they can. Without any further ado, please welcome Gaia Vince and Henry Mance. Hi, good evening. And um, yeah, a real pleasure to be here. And I wanna, um, I wanna start by just echoing everything Jack said about Gaia's book, which is, um, it is optimistic, wide ranging and amazingly concise. And I know that lots of uh, climate books, lots of environmental books struggle with that um, combination. But um, somehow she pulled it. Uh, she pulled it off. And I, I read it on a very hot train in, in, in Italy where the air conditioning had failed. And so sort of climate adaptation was at a real low point. And um, I imagine that that same air conditioning is failing somewhere somewhere around Ro Rome at the moment and uh, people are very hot and very sweaty and wishing that they um, were reading Guy's book um, and I think what's what's brilliant about it is that the right on on the political um, political debate the right always talks about migration um, or perhaps disproportionately talks about migration and the left talks about climate change and I think what Gaia's book what Nomad Century does is it shows that these are basically the same issue and that a lot of the um the framing we have of it is is wrong and unsustainable it's not it's not going to be um uh something we can we can hold on to for the rest of the century um so we've got an hour and we're going to come to your questions so please do um send them in um but i want to start by asking um guy if i can you 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 dot in lots of lovely sort of anecdotes and and perspectives and sort of evidence from trips and i wondered what are one or two of the the trips for this book that really kind of shaped your view on migration yeah hello hello henry hello um everybody everybody watching it's, it's such a it, it's such a joy to be talking to you henry um thanks thanks so much for um taking the time to do this 
Um, so in terms of the journeys, well, you know, this has been a book that um, sort of uh, gestated over many years. So I, I first kind of became aware, I think, of the of the fact that people were migrating because of climate change more than 10 years ago when I was traveling um, firstly through India where people were, they, they, they were having to move because of um, drought in some places and other places because of river erosion, because of a change to, um, to precipitation, uh, to rainfall and so on that, that was occurring there. And then as I, as I moved around, it became something that was, that was sort of growing in importance, particularly, I think, in Latin America. So along the Andes, where um, many rural communities have relied on glacier melt to irrigate their um, uh, their fields or to provide water for their alpaca farms and, and, and all of that. With, they, with the glaciers melting and disappearing and no rainfall, uh, they were being forced to move to the cities and move to slum housing. And, and so that's kind of when I first became aware. And also, yeah, yeah, in the, in the um, you know, the Indian Ocean and Pacific Island states that were already making plans to move their entire populations because um, as sea level rise um, increased, they were getting these these kind of compounding effects. So first of all, their land was disappearing um, because the water was, uh, the seawater was eroding it away. And secondly, agriculture was becoming impossible because um, it, it was um, getting into the water table underneath. Um, so even when you were kind of quite inland from um, the ocean, you still were feeling these huge effects of sea level rise. Um, and that's actually something which is starting to affect a lot of communities in the United States and, um, and beginning to affect people in Europe as well. This um, this kind of incursion into the water table of um, of salt water is kind of polluting a lot of the water that people rely on, and that's that's um, an effect that I don't think people have switched on to. But anyway, um, yeah, the what re what really prompted me to write it this book was was the fact that nobody's really talking about climate migration. No one's talking. You know, we, we've we've I've spent so long trying to get. Um, the issue of climate change um, sort of in front of people and get them to kind of notice that this is not just happening in the future, but kind of starting to already happen and that we need to mitigate, we need to stop um, um, emitting so much, um, so many greenhouse gases. And then there's this whole idea that we need to adapt as well, which is starting to creep into um, leadership discussions, but you know we're a long way from doing anything about that. Um, as you discovered on your Italian train. Um, and, but it's fine, but, but I, no one's talking about the fact that large parts of the world, for large numbers of people, they will not be able to adapt. They're going to have to move. And um, yeah, so so I was kind of, you know, yeah, and anxious I, I think, about that. I think your book's already had an impact on that because when I was hearing Nick Robinson talk about migration and, and interviewing a few people, uh, I think last week on the Today programme on Radio 4, he was coming back not just to the usual thing of, these people are fleeing war and famine, but also they're fleeing, fleeing climate change and it's happening now. They're being displaced from there. Oh, right. Well, so that's I great. Like I mean, I, I can't take credit for that, but um, no, brilliant. I'm, I'm really glad credit. that, um, you know, that that is coming to the fore because it's it's, you know, it's been really obvious if you look at the climate models. The, but the problem is yep. that the climate community and the migration community are very, very separated. 
So the climate community, you know, they're scientists that look at Earth systems and they model um, changes to atmospheric pressures and temperatures and chemistry and all of that. And the migration community are, um, you know, they're sociologists or they're disaster relief um, people. And they kind of look back at, um, you know, what's happened before. Uh, and then they when they when they project to the to um, the future, they sort of just think iteratively it might be slightly worse because of climate change, but they don't mm. get this idea that there's going to be a step change because of climate that's really going to impact it. And the two communities don't, they're not really melding on this really important issue. Well, let, let's look at what sort of underpins your book and what sort of, you know, frames it, which is the the outlook and you take a four a, um, a four degree rise as a kind of, as, as, as a way to model it. and um, you know, I'm saying I think that one of the reasons that some of our our hopes about keep, you know keeping temperature rise down might be a bit optimistic is we don't know about the some of the feedback loops, some of the you know the effect of wildfires, of the melting of the uh, permafrost, that kind of thing. So you know, so you take this four degree rise, and it's a pretty stark outlook. And I wonder whether you talk people through about sort of which kind of countries or which regions you're talking about potentially becoming you know uninhabitable or at least much less desirable to live in yeah so so um i looked at four degrees because if you look at where we're headed um in the current trajectory that's very reasonable in the um because you know no one can predict the future apart from mystic med and she's died so we're now forced to look at models um and the algorithm look at basically they look at probabilities so there's a there's a kind of um span of likelihood um, a, a sort of grey space of likelihood. And then um, what um, some scientists do is just take the median of that and say, that's where we'll be, you know, and that's what's happened with the, you know, the two degree target or the 1.5 degree target. Um, but if you look at where we're going, four degrees is well within that um, that that uh, trajectory. So so it is perfect. We're, we're right now, we're at about 1.35 degrees above the pre-industrial average. And you know, I think we've all seen the news, complete climate chaos everywhere, mm -hmm. um, uh, including in Italy, where it's, it's something heading up to 48 degrees, which is just um, mind blowing, actually. Um, so so um, at four degrees, if you look at the um, the models, if you look at what's predicted for the Earth, systems, you find this kind of zone of basically uninhabitability because of multiple effects. And um, the effects that really um, hit humans um, and our livelihoods and our agriculture are um, what I call the four horsemen of the Anthropocene, which are fire, floods, heat and drought, because those four and and they they often come in combination as well. So we don't just get one impact, we get multiple impacts. And that's really, really hard. And so we see this kind of zone of increasing unlivability that goes across the equator, but all the way up to southern Spain, south of Italy, and all the way down to the uh, the tip of um, the African continent, um, all of Asia, down all the way through Australia, um, and down in um, South America to sort of Patagonia. So um, if you look at that, what you see is these places which um, are home to, you know, billions of people are going to become increasingly unlivable, um, and but but and and also coastlines, of course, river deltas, many of our um, most populous cities. Um, mm -hmm. But then you notice that um, 
sort of uh, higher latitudes. Um, so in the south, there, there isn't much land um, at higher latitudes, but in the in the um, in the north, there is. Um, things are more livable. I mean, nowhere's going to escape the negative impacts of climate change, but they are better able to adapt, and they'll also um, experience some positive impacts of climate change as well. So they are the more livable areas. And if you look at migration, because migration is um is a natural adaptation that um, all most species um, use. You, you we're already seeing a migration of those that can, like insects, birds, fish, um, even you know static plants like trees. You know the tree line has noticeably um, migrated north, um, and uh, let, humans let me, too. Let me just come back to, to the countries affected because I think this is really fascinating. It's not just poor countries that are affected, are it? In your, you know, we're talking about parts of the United States. Yeah. Well, look now, right at 1.35 degrees, we've got more than 100 million Americans under extreme heat alerts. We've got um, floods um, across the US um, in the north. Pennsylvania has been, uh, you know, there's deaths. There's uh, one of the capital of Vermont is marooned. It's um, in a state of emergency. Canada's been on fire for months. You know, we're, we're experiencing the health effects of Canadian wildfires, not just in New York and in America, but also in Europe. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. The East Coast is experiencing tornadoes. Well, Midwest is tornadoes. The East Coast is experiencing um, floods, typhoons, um, hurricanes that are much more extreme than they were before. We're going to see um, key, really important cities like New Orleans going, you know, going to be unviable soon. And that migration too is um, is going to happen in the states. We're, we're already seeing some of that. So you know, it's not just um, poor countries. And I think that is the. That is perhaps the wake up call of the last few years, maybe two to three years. Um, you know, we saw it first in Australia, a rich country, which is uh, climatically really unfortunate in this in this um, instance. They've had they had black summer fires, uh, then they had terrible floods and they had more fires. I mean, you know, uh, the clock is ticking. Um, but you know, instead of thinking of climate change as something that will happen in the future or just is going to affect, you know, poor people in the global south, I think we're realising it's affecting us now. You know, I live in London. I had to pull my kids out of school last year because of the um, the heat was too extreme in their classrooms. Um, they were, you know, it's the biggest firefight of call out since the Blitz because of wildfires around London. I mean, Christ, yeah. um, but, it's, but it's everywhere now. I mean, because if you're a policymaker or politician, you might just say, hold our hands and say, look, everywhere's affected. It's going to be bad everywhere. And that is not, that's not quite what you're saying, is it? You're saying in the book, you're saying, look, we can already identify the places that are going to be really hit. And, you know, Miami, which is like, you know, in fashion, well, has been in fashion politically, but also with the tech bros and all these people who think of themselves as super farsighted, you know, it floods from from below doesn't it I mean there's no way you can build a, a wall around Miami and, and save it from flooding there's no easy solution and no, so exactly so you're saying that look, there are some places we can already identify which are going to be really badly hit and then some places like I mean like Canada's on fire but it's going to be livable I mean, despite those yeah exactly I think we you know we do have the data to be able to identify I mean weather is one of those um things that is chaotic and is hard to is hard to predict but long term when we look at the models it is 
you know, and I would say as well, so, you know, we had all the one points, keep 1.5 alive. Well, you know, let's forget that. We're going to exceed that in the next few years, uh, 1.5, you know, keep two degrees alive. You know, yes, because every degree matters, every tenth of a degree matters. But even at two degrees, right, we we're still seeing, we're seeing the impacts right now in 2023 at, um, you know, we're officially 1.2 degrees above the pre-industrial average, but actually about 1.35. We're seeing impacts that weren't expected until the 2040s or 2050s. So the sensitivity, the climate sensitivity to carbon dioxide seems to be much, much greater than um, we thought the upper end um, of this. So, you know, um, if we look at that and we actually and, and we look at where is going to be most affected and where is going to be safer, you know, that's what policymakers should be doing. That's what leaders should be doing. They should really be investing because it's not just people that are going to move. It's also capital. It's money, properties, um, skills, expertise. All of these things are going to be migrating. You know, it, it's the physics that um, we can't argue with. Um, now, we will be able to do something about some of these places, you know, we can adapt to a certain degree for some of these things, but where are we going to adapt? You know, we, we need to, we need to channel and focus on places that, um, that are, that will be, you know, safer and better able to adapt. And they are places, for example, in Canada, in the United States, they're places like, you know, the Rust Belt cities that were abandoned, you know, there's a lot of those around um, the Great Lakes, um, are going to be much more adaptable. Everywhere is going to have to adapt anyway, but some places are going to be able to, the, the impacts will be less. You know, if we're experiencing in Europe, crazy temperatures, flooding, heat wave, just have a look at what they're experiencing in India and Pakistan and, um, you know, Vietnam or the Philippines. You know, we don't hear so much about that, but it's much more extreme and it's affecting a lot more people. Um, and, you know, already the... The media coverage of climate change has kicked up a pace over over you know recent weeks, but it is almost entirely focused on on wealthy countries, and and that's that is um, you know what 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 we experience in this kind of this sort of social unjust world. We have to you know we have to realize that certain places are really becoming unlivable. Mm -hmm. You know, you you um you mentioned in the book that you panic. Panic Googled Canada and New Zealand as possible places to buy some land for you and your kids. Was that serious? Or... No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I, I really think if you're if you're going to invest in something, if you're going to think about moving house or an education or moving to a workplace, one of the first questions you need to ask yourself is what is the climate going to be like there? How viable is this in 10 years? Right. I mean, unless you're 98. Mm -hmm. You're going to be, you know, this is this is your life. It's not just your kid's life. This is your life as well. Um, that this climate chaos, you I know, know don't buy a house at the bottom of a hill in a flood zone. You know, yeah. no, asking for a friend. But how do you think England is going to do? And this, you say in the book that Eng England of the 2020s is not the England of the 1950s, and it won't be England of the 2070s. I wonder, do you have a sense of? Of, yeah, of well, there are, there are going to be climate migrates, migrants within Britain because, I mean, if you look at the southeast, it's already um, it's it's entering a spell of continual chronic drought. 
um, because of the because of the precipitation changes. Um, if you look at the southwest, that's um, a lot of that is experiencing flood and um, coastal erosion, all of those sorts of things. And if you look at our adaptation, there was a report out actually only a day or two ago, which um, slammed the government's adaptation to heat and um, and to climate generally. We, we are not doing the adaptation we need to do. And we are a wealthy country with relatively small climate impacts. You know, we, we need to change everything to adapt to this new climate. Um, we're not doing it here. You know, and, and we're going to be hosting a lot of climate migrants as well. I mean, if you look further north, if you look at Scotland, Scotland's quite lucky, Ireland lucky. Um, you know, in terms of uh, climate impacts, they will be much reduced. They will even see some positive impacts. You know, it won't get as cold in the winter, so we won't have to pay um, as much on heating. Um, uh, agricultural yields will be boosted. Um, they won't in, in Scotland, they won't have um, uh, a problem with sea level rise because uh, Scotland's still rising from the uh, last um you know, from from the retreat of the glaciers, you know, it's still bouncing back and it's bouncing back higher than the sea level can keep up with it. Um, and, you know, this is going to be the new north. This this um, area around the Arctic and, um, you know, Iceland, Greenland, Scotland, Scandinavia, these shipping routes are going to be increasingly important. This is going to be um, much more of a, you know, financial centre and economic um, industrial center of um of of the world um over the coming decades so you know that these are better places to be Canada is definitely a better place to be you know Canada yeah. is already planning to um you know treble its population it's 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 put in place um policies and it's receiving lots of people from Afghanistan Syria but also um you know India and the Far East. Um, that's a national project to to increase its economy. And it's completely understandable. You know, a lot of countries did this and have been doing it until very, very recently. This this kind of attitude to immigration is is actually very recent. This yeah. negative, toxic attitude that, um, you know, Britain and some of our um, European neighbours have adopted. Well, let's come on to that. I just want to say, by the way, that it's it's exactly a year since it was 40 degrees or 42 degrees in um, in the UK. And you, you mentioned, yeah, July 19th, and you mentioned adaptation. And I would be I would be fascinated to hear from anyone in the audience about whether they've seen any evidence of adaptation to high temperatures in that in that period. Of, if it happened, I mean, that was a day, they, those yeah. days, um, you know, the railways buckled so you couldn't have any trains. The airports yeah. were closed. Hospitals couldn't cope. You know, I mean, we are not in any way ready for this and yeah i've seen very little um and and that's what um the report said in the last last couple of years we're not we're not doing nearly enough well let's let's come on to sort of how migration is viewed and how it should be viewed because that's like a big part of the book and it's a fascinating uh, part and as you say we've got all this you know not just in the uk but in in, in other countries this sort of very negative attitude towards um uh um, immigration. You mentioned in the book that you're a daughter and granddaughter of, of migrants. I, I, I think I remember. Yeah. That, right? uh, yeah. Does that is that um, is that personal history sort of shaped your perspective and uh, coming to this? Um, I guess I guess I've always you know f f felt the influence of various different nationalities, identities, languages. You know, I've never felt like 
one of those people that says, oh, I can trace my ancestry back to the Vikings or something. I'm, I've sort of always thought that was a bit odd. And I think um, they own large parts of London, those people. Yeah, I know. And they're probably somewhere. French. They probably came over with the Normans anyway. I mean, the whole thing is just like, you know, what what is it anyway? Um, I guess the Normans were Vikings. So, but, so, what, so, but you want us to, so look, we're, we're, you know, yeah. people talk in terms of, Britain is full, we're struggling, we don't have enough houses, don't have enough doctors. And you, you're... Obviously- well, that's absolutely true that we don't have enough doctors and we don't have enough houses. But that is not, um, that is a policy choice that the government has made over the past decade or more, and more than that with housing, actually. Um, and it's nothing to do with immigration at all. Um you know, it, we're not managing to provide the houses, the access to medical facilities, access to schools, or infrastructure, any of that for the existing population because of policies. Now, if if immigration is to work, it needs to be supported financially. So, so it means that governments need to plan for an expanded population. So they need to make sure that the finances are available to increase um, access to these, which they're not providing for the existing population. Otherwise, of course, there will be conflict. Um, And there also needs to be, you know, social investment, not just financial investment in making sure that um, inclusion is really at the heart of all of this. And, you know, an expanded idea of what it means to be um, part of that nation, what it means to be a citizen of a country. Um, so that so that um, incoming people feel like citizens, they feel like Londoners and Londoners think of them as Londoners and, and, and um, you know, and everybody is kind of aligned in providing a London that has a future. I mean, I'm talking about London because that's where I am, but um, that's equally true for Manchester or Bristol or um, Berlin or wherever. Right. So so that 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 investment needs to be made. But, you know, in terms of immigration. It is, you know, I think that we are we are experiencing at the moment this this very toxic narrative driven by a very far right kind of mindset, populist leaders quite often who, you know, it's the easiest trope in the world to um, to scapegoat immigrants and to use them as the um, divisive kind of blameworthy community for all your failed policies as a government. Um, but you know, Britain see through that. I think we've we've seen um we've seen surveys which show that um you know Britons are actually not xenophobic on the whole. You know, more than half um think, for example, refugees make a, a positive contribution to society. Um, two thirds think that that refugees should be allowed, uh, asylum seekers should be allowed to work while they're waiting for their um, applications, and that that has that is an attitude which exists despite a really strong, um, you know, uh, media and and governmental. Um, uh, line, you know, basically saying the opposite, basically trying to sow seeds of distrust and hate um, against immigrants. So um, I think that's there's a really strong seed um, that that people don't, you know, they don't swallow this crap. Um, and we are all mixed, you know, we're not just mixed, you know, because we're all humans and, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, we're mixed really recently in recent generations, we, we've all moved around. Um, and my immigrants make such an enormous contribution to our economies, to our societies, our cultures, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of, uh, 
things spouted that are not true about immigrants, that they um, they increase unemployment, that they uh, lower wages, that they increase crime. Um, actually, the opposite is true in all of that. And we have so much data to show that because the economy is not a zero sum game. You know, there aren't X number of jobs. And if immigrants come in, they take those jobs. And so there's not enough for the, you know, existing sort of native population or something. It doesn't work like that, the economy. You know, the economy expands as people add to it because, you know, immigrants also need, you know, dentists or they need to buy a coffee or they need their um, clothes fixed. And they're also, you know, do, doing jobs. You know, people move for work. Almost entirely, mm. they move for work, and they move to where the work is. You um, have this nice example in the book of, of uh, uh, Czech workers who were allowed over the border into Germany. I think it was um, to to work, but they would go home to live, and they did have a negative impact on on employment uh, with no no corresponding benefits in terms of economic growth because they. And you say the problem was they weren't migrants; they were going back home every night and spending their money there. And had they been allowed to move there and and spend their wages, then they would have had that. that exactly. Benefit. Yeah. So Germany has had a very kind of. Um... Uh, backward kind of attitude to immigration for a long time. And that's changing and it's changed recently. Um, but yeah, you know, <laughs> either people come in and they are part of the society, they contribute to the economy. They, um, they These are normally young people, right? Working age people moving who pay taxes, who are kind of members of the economy as well as society and culture. And they're producing children that then you know, help we, you know, we've got this demographic deficit, this, this um, huge crisis growing in, in most countries in the West and not just the West, you know, um, China as well, I guess. So uh, where, where people are not having enough babies to support an aging population. And, and this is, you know, it's the, the proverbial has already hit the fan in Japan, right mm. where where they have an aging really you know people in japan live a long time because they eat delicious sushi and things i suppose but um you know they, they need care workers and um japan is very very xenophobic doesn't want immigrants to come in it's make it makes it very very hard to have um let people become citizens and so you know they've they've gone down the whole um uh, attempts of getting robots and AI to be these citizens, and they've even given them some form of citizenship. You know, incredible. Mm. It's kind of easier to become a citizen in Japan if you're a robot than if you're an actual person. Um, but they've had to admit failure, right? It doesn't work. There are some jobs that AI do really well, but a lot of jobs, they just do not go do very well. And, and these are actually the jobs that we need with an aging population as well. So they've actually had to weaken their immigration. I mean, we have, because of our self-imposed border restrictions with Brexit and, um, you know, and uh, our fabulous Home Secretary's kind of rules on everything, we have now um, labour shortages everywhere from, um, from farm work to hospitality to uh, construction, you know, across the board. Um, you know, economists are crying out and business leaders are crying out for more people to be allowed to come in. Um, it doesn't make economic sense. And, and you you uh, give the historic example of, the, of these Nansen passports um, that the UN um, sort of supervised, which was for stateless peoples to give them, I think, a, a temporary opportunity to go and look for work in in particular countries. And that's a that's a potential model for for the future, as you see it. 
you know, maybe not the sort of the right to seek asylum as a climate refugee, but a sort of temporary right to go and go and seek work um, in a in a more climatically stable country. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I really think that we need to we need to just change the whole narrative around borders, migration, all of this and and really look at it from um, an, an economic perspective largely so so you know at the moment migration um is treated largely as a security issue you know it's it's dealt with by um home secretaries by military border enforcement all of that it's actually an economic issue it's a labor issue um and it should be to, it should be treated it's also a humanitarian issue of course and you know i think there is huge huge value to sorting this out so that it becomes managed. And that means not waiting till people are asylum seekers, you know, suffering horrific tragedies, you know, I don't know, 33 million people were displaced in about a week in Pakistan last year because of floods, right? Um, you know, that's where we are now. In 10 years, in 20 years, this is going to be regional, People are going to, they're not going to be able to move within their countries. They're going to have to cross borders. They're going to have to move away from entire kind of areas. It's much better not to deal with these as kind of catastrophic evacuations with loads of refugees and asylum seekers. And how do we, how do we manage that? It's much better, I think, to plan that right now in a piecemeal way and look at, you know, when do people generally move? There is a time across the world, culturally, um, going back a long time when when people move. And that's kind of, you know, late teens to late 20s, early 30s. That's when people move naturally. You know, they're leaving the family home. They're moving for education, for jobs, for adventure, for love. They're forming their own families, all of that. That's the time to encourage these young people full of potential, you know, who can make amazing, you know, productive members of your society to help them move in a, to a safer place, to offer them opportunities in safer places and to plan for it, to make sure that you do plan. You know, the world's population is 8 billion at the moment. It's going to go up. So we need to plan for more people anyway. But those places which um, um, are going to see the larger numbers of people coming, we can plan for that. They can become established citizens, produce, you know, the societies of the next 10, 20, 30 years, and then those networks form and that diaspora can then help people who move, you know, the um, older people or more vulnerable people can move and be helped by people who are already there, existing members of their community and society, because people move in networks, then it isn't a huge burden on the state. It isn't a huge burden really for anywhere. This is a tragic situation. We need to make it as easy. We need to facilitate it. We need to plan for it. And we need to make it as you know, uh, financially viable as we can. And that might be by um, by uh, a UN organization, I think we need to to help um, help facilitate this, help help move people um, to, you know, there's no kind of international databases of, of jobs that are available, of educational positions that are available, you know, of grants that are available, you know, to, to help manage this. 
Yeah. And Nansen-style passports might be that. You know, the, the borders that we have at the moment are are not appropriate. They are absolutely not viable for a world of two degrees, let alone three or four degrees. They really are not. They were they were made in a different era, normally quite, most of them very quite recently. Um, and most of them were actually created to keep people in, right? Not to stop um and not not and to stop people leaving um and to to bring more people in for labor for to to join the military to join the um you know the work in the fields or build um industry just as we did with the with the windrush generation or 10 pound palms or whatever you know so there it's just it's simply you know we we need to rethink we need to rethink all of this and it would i i you t- you talk in the book about the sort of green cities we can build because obviously this uh you know climate migration is an adaptation but we also have to go about um that adaptation in a way that minimizes emissions and you talk about sort of building you know cities densely uh you know populated places which are more efficient lower lower emissions per person but building them in a way that i guess aren't like the cities um we have now and i've actually got a, a, there was a question here about um you know whether there's any sign that town planners realize that high-rise glass-faced tower blocks will be uninhabitable fairly soon without air conditioning that is unsustainably power hungry i'm not sure whether the, the glass-faced towers that tower blocks are that are, are that unsustainable or that bad and they certainly have problems but you but you you talk about wood as a building material about reflective surfaces etc what are the what are the cities what's the what's the vision yeah well i mean the truth is that everywhere is going to have to this is a huge upheaval everywhere is going to have to adapt right um whether you're living in mumbai or whether you're living in london wherever you're going to have to adapt because everything has changed so that does mean different building materials we've got to move away from concrete which um at the moment is a huge contributor to um carbon emissions we've got to redesign our our the the way we plan our our streets and you know, at the moment we have these, you know, our streets are built and our infrastructure, everything is built for a different climate. We've moved away from that kind of temperate climate that, you know, Brits talk about the weather all the time. We're famous for talking about the weather. And yet we have noticeably one of the most boring weathers on earth. It's just kind of drizzle, slightly warmer drizzle in the summer, colder drizzle in the winter. Like we don't have these dramatic extremes, but that's gone now. Now we really are having dramatic extremes. We're having, you know, there's new words in our vocabulary, things like atmospheric rivers, you know, whether and heat domes and, um, you know, various so types of rivers is in my vocabulary, but then I'm a, I'm a... <laughs> well, it, it means that the, you know, with these extremes where the hot air is holding so much water that we get these floods that last instead of, you know, an hour or so, they last for days or weeks and Mm. our streets can't cope. We don't have the drainage for that. Um, uh, You know, and and the same with drought. The drought is so severe in some places that the soil and the ground is compacting and making infrastructure like bridges and um, foundations of buildings unstable. You know, it's 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 a real problem um, that we're coming to. And and our buildings are just not coping. They're not they're not built for this. We are going to have to adapt to a hotter climate. We're going to have to have buildings that don't just sort of suck out um, energy from the grid, but actually produce their own energy. Um, we're going to, ha- you know, obviously we have to have this huge energy transition, but, you know, these can be better cities, much better cities. They're going to be denser because we need more people. Um, 
But instead of having these um, alienating tall tower blocks where nobody knows anyone, there's no sense of community and there's, you know, they're ridden with crime and there's lack of opportunity and, and you know, destitution, essentially, we need to build livable, livable cities, you know, something like four to six stories with community spaces that aren't sort of completely commercialized and owned by private enterprise, but but are places where people can come together and form those communities that are going to be key for resilience as we enter these really difficult times ahead. Mm. You know, we're going to have to have an energy transition. Of course, that's already underway. But that, again, could be really great. You know, once once we have a huge rollout, which needs to be much faster, but once we have it of wind and solar and heat pumps and geothermal, you know, these don't need to be refueled all the time like coal and gas and oil. They're essentially there free, giving you cheap, abundant energy. And that makes everything else so much easier. I mean, the, what I hear from you is really this this quote that um, you use in the book from Angela Merkel, which is, you know, at the time when she took in what turned out to be, I think, a million uh, refugees from Syria. She said, you know, we'll um, uh, we will manage. Right. And I, I really I get that sense from the book that, you know, it's it's it can be apocalyptic if you spend too much time looking at wildfires or, you know, heat maps, etc. But I mean, you seem to have a real faith in in humanity and this and then and also this sort of long view um that humanity has always migrated and it and it will continue to migrate and it's not the end absolutely i mean this is doable we still have lots and lots of choices um you know i want people to start talking about all of these things talking about climate migration talking about you know how people can move the numbers we're talking about you know how we make it work for all of us because we are endlessly inventive. We can come up with solutions to pretty much everything that we've um, come across. But at the moment, we, we're being held back because there isn't honesty. There really is not honesty from our leaders about the reality of what we face in the coming decades. And there isn't honesty about what our choices are. You know, we are fed this kind of... Um, like children, you know, we're fed these kind of um, stories of, oh no, it's going to be fine. We're 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 going to be the the we're the greenest country and the you know whatever and reach net zero before everyone else. And we're also going to open you know new gas and oil and even a coal powered station. And we're going to start fracking. You know what the hell? Let's have some clarity on actually what it means. And when we you know if we can't afford the green transition. What does that actually mean, right? Because let's look at the costs of the green transition, the short-term costs, and let's look at the costs of not doing the green transition at this time. We're going to have to do it anyway, all right? There isn't a choice now. We're going to have to do it anyway. You know, should we do it now with um, higher upfront costs, but much, much lower overall costs? Or should we wait and make everything a hell of a lot worse, <laughs> You know, <laughs> these are the choices that we genuinely have. And we're not we're not being told honestly what they involve. So so people are, uh, you know, they're unable to follow and they don't they don't they don't have trust in yeah. in leaders to deliver any of this. They, you know, who would? I, I want to ask one final question before I come to the audience questions, of which there are many uh, good ones already, but still time to type one in, um, which is sub-Saharan Africa. I, I mean, 
I've been to, to briefings by economists, even by, you know, government people saying look, this is the, you know, this is the future uh, economic growth driver of the world. You've got a population that's going from 1 billion to 2 billion to 3 billion by the end of the century. If we take your projection, and it, it always struck me that those projections were done without thinking about climate change, right? They exactly, were just, exactly. I mean, what, it's what amazing. Does, what, does, what are you saying about Nigeria or about... Yeah, I mean, so... Are they never going to reach that size because people are going to leave, as it were? The, the, sort of the no, so, so there are a few places where um, population is still growing. Okay, so, so globally, population is likely to peak in the 2060s, mm-hmm. and then it may even come down to where we are today by the end of the century. There are, and there's the two huge drivers of that are urbanization. You know, when people move to cities, as they are doing rapidly, um, people have fewer fewer children. Um, and when women and girls are educated and and given rights, again, fewer children. So um, we we are we are getting to that stage. And yes, they are going to be economic drivers, but not on that continent, right? They are going to bring their skills their vibrancy, their, um, you know, intelligence, their, um, you know, their their drive, they're going to bring that. That's what I mean by it's not just the people moving, it's also the capital. Um, that, that, you know, cultural knowledge and expertise, all of that is going to be moving further north. You know, when the, the world becomes less inhabitable in these areas, it doesn't mean everybody will leave. But it means that large populations will not be viable in the way that they are today. So, you know, uh, we already have places that are, if you know, they're basically unlivable for much of the year. Places like Dubai and Qatar and Phoenix in Arizona, they, they are only livable because of enormous amounts of adaptation. You know, everything in Dubai is brought in food, water, you know, the, the, they live in an artificial air conditioned shopping mall. Um, and so a small wealthy population can live like that in Dubai, you know, that works, but, you know, 30 to 50 million people in Mumbai, 2040, 2060. No, right. A small population will live like that. You need people to work on the streets and to do building. Exactly. And those people are all dying, right? Not all of them, but, but a lot of them, you know, we've we've had, yeah, in Qatar, they, and they are generally climate migrants, right, from Nepal, from Pakistan, right, who have had to leave their, to, to seek their fortunes as construction workers um, in these places. And they're dying of, you know, kidney failure, heat stroke. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible way to die um, because it is unlivable. You know, a lot of these places, they only do work anyway at nighttime with head torches, which is, you know, bad anyway for your health. Um, you know, sort of working entirely in night shift, a, a nocturnal existence. But even then, it's still it's still deadly. You know, for large numbers of people, this is this you know this is not going to be the solution. So so we're going to have to find alternatives. And you know, if you don't like this, if you don't like the idea of um, so many climate migrants, then you know, what's the alternative? There are, you know, we can reduce the numbers by investing massively in um, mitigation, emissions reductions. We can invest massively in adaptation for a lot of these places that are the hardest hit. You know, we're saying we're not doing it in Britain yet. Well, they're not doing it in Nigeria, in Lagos, right? It's This is not adapted for the conditions to come. They're I not- have a question on that point, actually, from Kevin. Do we, do, do we 
do we simply accept that parts of the world are, are uninhabitable, will become uninhabitable, or look at ways of continuing to sustain these economies with financial support? I mean, what, part of what you're saying there is that you could you could promote some adaptation, even in very hard. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, they need adaptation. But so you need a combination, and this will exist. This will be um, a a. Uh, this will be an issue everywhere um, in Britain, in America, in um, in Bangladesh. You know, some places you invest in heavily adapted um, scenarios. You know, you you really really adapt it to to that um, to the, the the conditions, whether it's um, extreme temperature, whether it's um, extreme flooding, all of those things. And some places you have to say no, we're going to retreat from there. We're going to sacrifice that area. It's not worth it. And, you know, that's already happening in, you know, small villages, coastal villages in England. It's going to happen much, much more widely across the global south very soon. Um, The problem is moving is very hard at the moment. We make it very hard. It's hard anyway. People don't want to move. They don't want to leave their country, their community, their their friendship groups, the the way their jobs and their language, all of that to move to another country that's safer or even a place that's safer in their own country. They want to move there because they don't know people. They face prejudice. We make it very, very hard for them, all of those things. And so many people are needlessly dying because of that very issue. And that's, um, you know, we, we need to make things easier from that perspective. But, you know, there are things we haven't even talked about in terms of choices and which, again, we need to have, you know, national but also international honest discussions about. And they are things like geoengineering. You know, we are we going to reduce the temperature of the planet artificially while we sort some of these things out? Because, um, you know, that again is that there are no easy options, right? There are no easy options. Everything has trade-offs. The easy options, we had them in the 1980s. We do not have them anymore. Everything's got um, got trade-offs, but we need to be honest about that. You know, we need to decide, are we going to look into this um, research? Are we going to deploy it? If so, where? Who will get to deploy it how will we decide it very briefly because i want to come to more questions if i can but um should we open the door to geoengineering i think we definitely need to talk about it i think it's going to be i think it's going to happen anyway um in the next uh 10 20 years but i would much rather it was it was um it, it came with regulations that there was compensatory procedures in place for negative um effects of it that we had parameters around its use and agreed um, criteria for how to use it, all of those things, rather than a country unilaterally decides it's, you know, they can't take it anymore. We're going to deploy this in the hope that we get livable conditions for longer. Fewer people have to flee, you know, a big nation like India or China. You know, I I, I think we need to talk about this sooner. You know, it's not governments, um, governments enacted emergency legislation to bring in lockdowns because we had a global pandemic it was a public health emergency and they needed to save lives it was an acute emergency those lockdowns lasted well some places months but generally weeks um at a time if we if we do the same thing you know there were no discussions before that of you know under what circumstances will we have lockdowns nothing like that that it was democratically decided nothing and i'm like i'm fine with that right it saved lives few i you know we it could be done better a lot of this could have been done better as the pandemic inquiry is finding out but um 
But, you know, if we were talking about geoengineering, this is not going to be for a few weeks or maybe a few months. This would be a long term solution or action um, that would affect the globe. Right. We need okay. to have those discussions, honestly. Let's part that there very quickly. One, one word answer. Why haven't you mentioned Russia and Siberia or northern China as places with a viable future? Just very briefly, are they places that will be? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Russia actually stands to gain um, a lot from this. I mean, Putin's in his 70s. You know, I don't know how long he's going to last. Maybe, maybe several years. Maybe he'll accidentally fall out of a window in the next few weeks. Who knows? And who knows who's coming after him? But you know, we we can't be trapped in today's kind of political situation. We have to look longer term at what we're facing. And you know, Siberia. A lot of Siberia is is going to rapidly change. Permafrost is completely changing. Um, you know, some of that will be drained. Um, will be um, agricultural land. Um, that whole uh, um, coastline, you know, we, we don't know what it will be viable for everything from large scale fisheries to mining to um, exploitation as, you know, in, in bad ways as well as good ways. But certainly a lot of these horrible Soviet um, era uh, towns, the, the sort of Stalin towns um, will be will be much more viable um, as Anyone temperatures warm. To move there, you've got to have a tip. Um, is the current UK government, this is from Anonymous, uh, planning... Imagine the food's bad. Um, right. Um, is but there... again, that's what immigration solves very quickly. Ah, good. There'll be better vegan options in the in uh, Siberia. Is the current UK government planning for this shift in the future? Does it have a specific position on climate migration? And I want to combine that with a question. From no, no, Obama. it doesn't. And this is a huge, huge problem. The well, government no is not... No, no, it's got no real... Well, it's policy on migration. I think we've all seen it. It basically yeah. comes down to stop the boats. Um, yeah, I think it's as, as long and short of that. And it's not very well thought out at all. And well, People um, flee um, unsustainable conditions in central uh, sub-Saharan Africa and we send them back to Rwanda. That probably isn't a sustainable exactly. policy. I mean, the whole, so. yeah, the whole thing's a complete car crash. But I mean, we need to look again. We need to look beyond this government, which is not going to be in power um for for more than um you know another year do you, um, and a, qu a question from Yvonne do you speak to MPs do they listen to you are they being I have spoken to a couple there is there is huge reticence to even broach this subject and that is a you know through all of this the way that migration is being discussed and handled and the way that climate change is being discussed and handled but particularly migration there is this been this huge abdication of responsibility on um, left and centrist from left and centrist government who have this timidity to even approach it and to discuss it because they're they're afraid of um, a xenophobic minority and what we need is a new narrative we need leadership with vision who can honestly talk about the reality of what we face and how we manage it because you know if you don't like this idea of of um you know of, of trying to um adapt and mitigate climate change and um trying to help people with one form of adaptation which is moving away from dangerous unlivable conditions to more livable conditions if you don't like that then what's your alternative because 
What I see is my primary school age children conscripted into armies to fight fleeing Bangladeshis or, you know, fleeing um, engineering students from Lagos. And that's not a future that I want to see. Um, We can do a lot better than this if we manage it. It's going to be difficult, whatever. There are no easy choices. You know, it's going to be difficult, but we can do it in a way that builds a better world, that builds a more productive cities and societies, all the while restoring the planet's climate, ecology. We've also got a biodiversity crisis, you know, so that, you know, we we restore livability. You know, it's not ideal that we're living in a world where large portions of the world are becoming unlivable for people. It's really not ideal. We can do better than that. Jack asks on that point, do you think there will be a version of stranded assets when it comes to land? So we've heard about oil and gas. Yeah. Assets and that's a, that's actually a real problem. And um, that's where a lot of people will be trapped. So that's kind of what I was saying when I, when I was saying, you know, if you do make an investment, if you do, if you do think about where you're going to move to do put climate right at the center of that. Um, and, and also for, you know, for your pension, for other investments, don't invest in a bad financial mess. Um, a poor investment of fossil fuels, that's a dying industry um, wrapped up in climate litigation that's just coming, you know, invest in future green, socially responsible technologies or biotech or whatever um, to build a better world. But what what we're going to see at the moment, a lot of, so in this country, a lot of um, houses are being built in places that they shouldn't be. Um, and from, you know, houses are being built that immediately need um, to be retrofitted. Yeah. What the hell? I mean, it's just ridiculous um, because building codes were so weakened um, in 2016. In the US, they're still being built in because of political lobbying. They're still being built in fire risk zones, in um, flood risk zones, all, all of that. And these houses will not be what, what happens is they become uninsurable. Because the insurance industry is one of the first movers in all of this. That's why the fossil fuel industry is about to have a massive crash because, you know, of insurance costs. It's not a viable, um, uh, it's not a viable investment. Um, but the same thing with with housing. You know, if you if you have a, a business or a, um, or a residency in an in a area that is very likely to be flood hit or or whatever you won't be able to get insurance for that and then you won't be able to sell it because no who's going to buy something you can't insure and so what's happening is some governments are set uh, um coming in and um underwriting it in certain areas they did that in new orleans they've done it at least twice in new orleans um you know that's not sustainable so at what stage do they decide you know that's not going to happen and then people so rich people can move away, right? So you get this kind of climate apartheid, you get this gentrif- climate gentrification, I guess. People move away from risky areas that can afford to, and the poor get stuck. They cannot move. They can't afford to move because the, where they live is completely worthless because of climate change. And mm-hmm. the thing is, as people move away from these towns, businesses move away, they become less and less viable in terms of uh, you know, nobody wants to live there because there isn't a grocery store that's open. There's no businesses to work in. It's a dep- It becomes a deprived area socially and economically, as well as because of the flooding. So all of these things are connected. And um, we absolutely need to talk about that. And how are we going to help poorer people move? Because the people that are most impacted in rich countries, as well as poor countries, are marginalised groups. You know, uh, they are the ones that 
are stuck without air conditioning and heat waves. They're the ones that are living in flooded basements that drown in their own homes. You know, all of these things are connected and um, we need a fair way of uh, planning our viable cities for the future that, that yeah. you know, make it livable for everybody. Um, thank you so much. That's a, a wonderful tour of all the policy changes that we could, you know, think about, and you, people will have heard your message. I, um, I'm sorry I couldn't get to all the questions. Um, I do want to end on one note. I, sometimes I go to these um, uh, events on climate, and there's such desire for to do something. And, we, and your book rightly emphasises that policy is where it's at. That it's, you know, that's uh, solving these problems collectively is is key. But I wonder if people are going away with such motivation about what they can do for the climate and they want to do something individually just to uh, to kickstart things. Any suggestions? Any yeah, ideas? so there's lots of things you can do. Um, first of all, put pressure on your political leaders, right? So write letters to your members of parliament, um, campaign and um, vote for a government that actually gives a shit about these issues and has a strategy to do something about it. Um, if you do have investments, invest wisely. Don't invest in uh, industries that are making it worse. Make your own environment much more friendly to nature and um, climate resilient. So don't have artificial grass. Don't have massive paved driveways. There are there are options that allow water to soak through, um, you know, pollinators that are rich, all of those things. And eat much less meat and dairy, eat mainly plants. You don't have to become 100% vegan. And if you want more information on how to go about that, read Henry's brilliant book. <laughs> you absolutely should. But, but really, you know, we do, you don't have to be vegan, but you do have to eat a lot less meat. And, and um, it's not a deprivation. Believe me, it's really, it's good for your health. It's good for the planet. It's good for your soul. Excellent. Well, it's um, almost time for me to go and cook a Beyond Burger uh, for dinner. So um, on, on right on key. Um, thank you all so much for watching. We had a really great audience today. And uh, thanks for the for the great um, uh, questions. And if we couldn't get to them, the answers to many of them are in Gaia's book, Nomad Century. So please go out and buy it. And uh, it's 200 of the best and most succinct pages you'll read. Thank you, Henry. Gaia, Henry, thank you so much. That was so fascinating and far-reaching and sobering too, but it was amazing to get such a clear and, and hopeful look into the future. So thank you very much for that conversation. And thank you again to our audience for all of your questions and to Keystone Positive Change for making tonight possible. We're going to take a break over the summer. So uh, please do tune in for the rest of our Keystone series when we begin again in September. But we do have one last event before our, our August break. Uh, next week, Colm Tabeen will be in conversation with the poet Sean Hewitt discussing his new essay collection, A Guest at the Feast. You can find information about how to register for that on our website, 5by15.com. Thank you again all for attending this evening and good night. <laughs>